The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Meet the Author, sponsored by the Arizona Council of the Blind. Um, today is January 23rd, 2024, um, and joining me are, I am Kayla, I'm going to be your facilitator today for those of you who don't know me. Um, I do live here in Arizona. Um, we have Desi as our host today, a former Arizonian, and I miss you, um, so I'm so glad you're here hosting tonight. Over in Clubhouse, we have Natalie helping us out, so uh, Natalie, if you get a hand over there when it's time for questions, please just speak up um, so that we can get those uh, those peeps getting their answers, uh, questions answered. So thank you so much for helping me out. I am streaming and broadcasting, so we're getting us connected and out there on ACV Media 5. Um, so tonight I have a USA bestselling author, um, Barbara Hinsky, joining us. Um, and I'm so grateful that uh, that Barbara was able to join us here again. Um, I think it was back in May or June, um, we did an interview about the Guiding Emily series and kind of went into some detail on that and everything. So she is also here in Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, one of our locals, that's awesome. And thank you for for being here, Barb. I'm so grateful that you, you made the time for us. Um, I wasn't going to go too much into your history and bio, um, mostly because we did that in the last interview we did, and um, uh, Barb Barbara was more recently on Sunday edition, I think like two Sundays ago, and um, Anthony did a great job interviewing her, giving some of her background, how she kind of got to where she is today, as well as some of the advocacy that she is planning to do. Um, and, and she spoke a little bit with the employee committee to see kind of how she could help out there. So that podcast is available on uh, acbmedia.org um, or on your ACB Link app. And I'm pretty sure it's on pretty much all the, the podcast catchers out there under Sunday edition. So that's enough for me talking. <laughs> hey, Barb. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Kayla. I'm so happy to be here and to see all the names. And I don't want to be inappropriate, but when I start, I see that Deanna Noriega is on. She was on Sunday edition. Yes. And I was trying to find her book, 50, I think it's 50 Years of Walk. I don't have it in front of me right now. I didn't find it on Amazon. So if Deanna could email me where to find it at B Hinsky, B like the letter, just B Barbara, H-I-N-S-K-E at gmail.com. I would be very grateful. Um, yeah, I was trying to go all over the place to try and find her. So, um, and here she is. Oh, and I have all her contact info. So, (laughs) okay. Okay, So now I can't get her. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So if you need to connect, I can help out with that. Um, so, well, thank you. And I'm not going to backtrack. I want to talk, we talked about, it might be fun to share some of the behind the scenes scoop about the movie that was made by Hallmark, um, aired on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, September 8th, same name as the book, Guiding Emily. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that and to make the, I want to talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff, 
I was, uh, my husband and I went there for two of the three weeks of filming. It was filmed in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, which is absolutely a beautiful area. Uh, all of it was done um, on location. None of it was on set. So we got to go a lot of different places, which was really fun. And this is my second time, second time to have a book of mine made into a movie, second time on set. Um, and it certainly is a whole lot different than what I thought it all would be in my mind. So I'll get into some of that stuff. But I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit about the book, um, which was inspired by a um, visit to the Foundation for Blind Children in 2018. I toured it there, 2019, 2019, um, and was so moved by what I saw that I asked the development director, what do you guys need? What can I do to help? And of course, a nonprofit always needs money. And he said, we need to increase awareness of the isolation that visually impaired people feel within the sighted world. And I said, okay, well, I can help on both those counts because I can write a novel about it. So I can raise awareness in a novel and I can donate half of my proceeds, half my royalties from guiding Emily go to the foundation. So that's kind of how that started. And just since so many people here are from Arizona, there's so many ties in the book that then followed through to the movie into our local community. Not only did I get the idea for guiding Emily, I got, well, the name from the name of Emily Maine came from a, um, uh, live auction thing that I did for the Desert Foothills Library in Cape Fear, Arizona. I donated naming rights to my next book. Those naming rights were brought, bought by a woman by the name of Emily Maine. So I had my main character. Uh, the foundation was very generous to me in terms of giving me lots of technical advice, which obviously in these books, uh, there's an awful lot of research because I want it to be, it needs to be simplified. It isn't like a technical, technical manual, but it needs to be simplified and it needs to be accurate. So I got white cane training. I had access to um, a group counseling session for newly blind adults who signed waivers and let me sit in on their counseling session, which was um, heartbreaking and inspiring in equal measures. And I'm still friends with one of the people um, from that session. Julie, the late Julie Rock was so helpful to me in all the guide doc stuff. Um, Stephanie, I'm sorry, Cynthia Woods who and her guide dog Biscuit, she bought naming rights at a later um, live auction or, uh, for the foundation. And so she didn't want her name used, but Stephanie in in the Guiding Emily books two through forever and the Guide Dog Biscuit are, are based on her. So as most novelists, there's just an awful lot of real life that goes into these books. Um, and Christy Siefkin, who used to be the weather person at Channel 10 was a puppy raiser and a friend. I was trying to find somebody who could get me behind the scenes at a guide dog school. A friend of mine knew Christy, introduced us. Christy opened doors for me at Guide Dogs for the Blind. And I went over to California for three days. My husband and I did. Um, and saw a 
close and personal their operation and they've been marvelously supportive the whole time. So there's just an awful lot that goes into these books. And particularly with Guiding Emily, when I sold the screen rights, I mean, I knew when I wrote the book, I wanted to sell the screen rights because a movie can bring the message of a book to such a wider audience. But unlike my first book, The Christmas Club, that I sold, um, Hallmark took what was said in 1952 and based more loosely on a kind of a a view of brotherly love of people who are just kind to each other Christmas time, sort of a pay it forward meets it's a wonderful life is what I described the book as. Hallmark took that and made it into a contemporary romance, Hallmark romance. And I knew it at the time. And I certainly wasn't going to turn it down because, you know, I'm a relatively uh, little known author selling screen rights and it got made into a movie. That's a big deal. I wasn't going to turn it down. But with Guiding Emily, I really needed it not to be turned into a Hallmark Rose romance, typical romance, because the book is a love story between Emily Maine and the puppy that becomes the guide dog and, and Garth, who later becomes her guide. And it's the love story of them coming together. So I wanted that storyline to be honored and I needed it to be an accurate portrayal of the situation but it couldn't be a, oh, feel sorry for the blind girl movie. It couldn't be, um, I didn't want it dumbed down. I needed it to really foster that sense of inclusion. All of that as somebody who's only sold one other movie, right? So I was kind of out over my skis and thinking I was going to accomplish this, but I personally believe in the hand of the divine in a lot of my life. I'm going to take a little drink of water here. And so I published Guiding Emily in June of 2020, you know, during the pandemic. And by August, I was in screenwrites talk, talks on that with the people, the two producers who eventually did purchase the rights and bring it to Hallmark. Um, Beth uh, uh, Grossbard was one of the producers and she found Guiding Emily from reading a Kirkus review about it and her co-producing partner Lisa Demberg's adult daughter is a puppy raiser so I had my first call with them they called me found me on my website and called me and Lisa said to me you will make me a hero in my own home if you let us make your book into a movie and I said I need to talk to you about what you think of the book and what you see thinking I would get 15 minutes of their time well I got three hours of their time we had on that first call we one of them Beth had to leave and for a conference call and something else and then come back we really hashed out just the mission of this book and the meaning of the book and they promised me that the finished product would honor that because they, I knew they caught the mission. So, and the vision. So I sold it to them and you know what? They delivered on that promise beautifully. I think I am. So I don't know how many people here have seen the movie, um, but I was very pleased. So I'm good, but there are some things I didn't 
particularly like, and I will talk about that, but that gives you a little bit of the backdrop of how that goes about. And of course we had COVID going on and, and production of, of film rights and everything, screen things were slowed down with COVID protocols. I did not write the screenplay. I'm not a screenplay writer. They hired, I think just a beautiful screenwriter for it. So all of that was going on. Um, but you know, it's in television time and movie time, it came, it came about pretty fast um, in three years from when the book was published. So in terms of the actual, um, oh, and I have to tell you, is seeing my name on the screen based upon the book by Barbara Hinsky, that is a moment. That is a moment. The first time you actually see that, wow. That is um, awesome. <laughs> it, is, it is. You just, it is. And I've captured screenshots of both of those and I've gotten them framed in my office because I do believe that you need to celebrate and remind yourself of your wins because um, sometimes things don't seem like you're getting a whole lot of wins back to back. So it's good to remind yourself. Absolutely. I love that so much that you did that, that you have them there to, to keep you going. Yeah. To keep you going. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the book, Garth is a black lab based upon Julie Rock's black lab guide named Neoki. But so I made him a black lab in my book. But the movie made him a yellow lab because there's more contrast in his face. It's easier to film a light colored dog. So that's fine. That didn't make any difference to me. The, the film company got all of their dogs that they used from British Columbia and, and Alberta guide dogs. So these weren't movie dogs. They were guide dogs somewhere in the process. They used eight dogs in the filming. None of them were fully uh, full-fledged guide dogs. I think that the oldest dog that they used is a dog named Owen. And I think he just graduated. I follow him on Instagram. Graham and he's adorable. I think he just graduated and has been placed with someone. They had four puppies, which it was interesting to me to see that why they needed so many puppies. And I now know why so many people said, oh, you'll never sell those screen rights, anything with dogs. Nobody wants to film with dogs. I can see why, um, because they, they introduce a lot of variables. And if the dog isn't behaving well, there's a lot of time that gets wasted. Um, I could see there was one point when the director was getting a little frustrated, but in general, everybody did just fine. They used four puppies this movies are not filmed in chronological order of when the scenes take place. Um, sometimes you'll have a location where they'll be like we did with, there was a coffee shop in the movie. There was a scene that was filmed there that occurred early in the movie and a scene late in the movie. Well, it's expensive to rent out these real life locations. Um, this coffee shop is an actual busy, charming little coffee shop across from the park but they actually rented it out for a couple of days and, you know, they had to put up a new sign for the coffee shop and even the little free library outside the coffee shop, they changed the name of the little free library. And so 
they're not going to do that more than once. They're going to, the set designers and everything else want to lock and load all the filming there in, in a day or two. That's fine. Um, except that sometimes the puppies aren't, well, one of the puppies was too, they decided they used him in the first scene and they said, oh no, um, he's, he's too big for using in the later scene. Or no, he was too small to use in the later scene. Somebody was looking at the film and they were like, uh-oh, we used the wrong puppy. We used the one that's in the litter, he's way too big. And this other scene we are just filming, it's supposed to be like six weeks later. We So they had to refilm it all and get his sister in and um, make sure that the, the size of the dogs made sense as they were going through. And I thought, well, I guess that makes sense. One of the things that I heard people grumbling about was who were trying to, you know, manage and work with the dogs and squeaky toys to get them, you know, to look up when they're supposed to look up and all the rest. And Sarah Drew had treats in her hands almost at all times to work with Owen, who was like the oldest dog. They kept saying, oh, we should have used show business dogs. Why in the, why in the world did we use guide dogs, really? or guide dogs in training, what's the difference? We should have used show business dogs because they would have been more able to respond to commands. Um, silly me, I didn't think there was a difference, but uh, there is. And one of the fun things that I got to, to see was um, the middle the middle aged, the middle dog in the, in the age range in the movie was, um, sort of a, I don't know how old he was, maybe eight or nine months, something like that. Boy, he was a handful. He was a handful. I think they were glad to see him leave. But when they can, but when they concluded his scene, they did something that I wasn't aware is, is something that they do in movies. When an actor is done filming their last scene in that particular movie, cast and crew gather around him and clap him off. And they did that for the dog too. So I thought that was... That was kind of nice. Um, so that's kind of the dogs. Before you move away from the dogs, did you get to play with them at all? Or Yes, a little bit, just a little bit. They were easily distractible and that was driving because everybody wanted to, you know, especially the four puppies. So yeah. at the Chip and Food Cafe, we did get to hold puppies and my husband and I got our pictures taken with the puppies um and sometimes like they'd go to film the scene and they try to pick up the puppy and the puppy was like so far asleep it wouldn't even wake up so they're like <laughs> okay we have to block something else until the puppy can wake up <laughs> it was really interesting to see that now when they do they do have a couple of scenes where there are people actors there with their actual guide dogs and those those scenes filmed very well because those dogs really were, well, the, their part was just to act as a guide dog and they were perfect. Awesome. One of the one of the fun things about one of the better things about having guide dogs there than acting dogs was that, of course, the guide dogs are always there with handlers. Like one to two people were there. You got eight dogs. You're going to have a couple of people there handling them. 
And cast and crew would go over and ask, especially as the movie went on and people realized just how helpful guide dogs are and how long a wait it is to get a guide dog because there just aren't enough people to puppy raisers and all the rest to get them, get them trained. So three people um, within the crew signed up to be puppy raisers while we were on set. And I, I found that very gratifying. Uh, you I were already making a difference in the world right there. Oh, yeah. A few little puppies said that was really, really nice. We were all happy so. to hear that. Um, I'm, so I'm looking at my notes to make sure I talk about the good stuff. One of the changes... Um, of course, they always make some changes. In the book, Emily loses her vision on a horseback riding accident on her, on her honeymoon. And that was changed into a rock climbing accident. And the reason for that, I guess, if I had thought about it when I was writing the book, and I think more about this now when I'm writing, was that horseback riding is very expensive to film. And on a beach... Hello, you need permits. And I think in British Columbia, you're not allowed to have dogs on the beach or horses on the beach anyway. So lesson learned on, you know, some of these gray, I had this great scene in my mind, but thinking about filming it, um, think about how much it'll cost and if it's even possible. So they changed it to rock climbing, which is fine. They used a stunt double in, in the film for that particular scene, Emily, her her boyfriend, her fiance is climbing ahead of her and dislodges a rock that then freak accident tumbles down and hits her in the head. Um, but they used a stunt double, which for an author who writes women's fiction, it's like, we never write stuff that has stunt doubles, stunt doubles. So I've been bragging to all my <laughs> author friends about that. That's funny. <laughs> So let's see. So just some of the differences, I mean, some of the nice things that the, the film wove in while Emily is sitting still at her mother's while her eyes are bandaged after she has surgery after accident, which is not successful, she finds out. They, in the book, it's that retinal surgery where you have to lie down flat with your face down on a bed, you know, for two weeks, completely miserable. And Hallmark said, well, we can't do that. We can't put our reader, our viewers through that. So they just made her sitting on her mother's um, outdoor sofa. And I'll have to tell you, I mean, her the house they used for Emily's mother's house is probably the most beautiful home I've ever been in. I can't believe this, these people let rented their house out, but they do. Um, it was on the ocean. I, I was talking to the, one of the executive producers. He said, it's easily a $10 million house. Gardens manicured like I've never seen. Beautiful flowers, beautiful views, fire pits, everything. Kitchen to dive, all this kind of stuff. They have most of the house, of course, roped off because you're not supposed to go places. And 
um, I was kept thinking, oh, would anybody really notice some stuff? <laughs> I'd get kicked out. I didn't do that. Boy, I was tempting. So Emily has to sit and just enjoy ocean breezes for three weeks, which was fine. But while she's doing that, they show Garth being trained and he's being trained to sit and stay. So I thought that was kind of a nice juxtaposition that they did. At one point um, in the book, I have a co-worker of Emily who's um, based upon a, uh, an attorney who used to work for me back when I was practicing law, who's just this brilliant and endlessly kind guy who's a little bit on the spectrum, uh, doesn't pick up on social cues real well. His name in the book is Drav, which means faithful in Indian, but they named, they named him Drew in the movie, which I can understand because nobody can ever pronounce Drew. But anyways, Drew. And so at one point, Emily is she doesn't want to tell her team what's going on because she hasn't taken her bandages off. She doesn't know what her future is going to be. So she's just on FMLA and has said nothing to anybody. She's had this very close team of coworkers. So um, she's not answering texts or phone calls or anything. So her coworker, Drew, goes looking for her. Her. And he goes to her fiance's house and knocks on the door and says he's looking for Emily. And Connor says, Well, she's not here, but don't don't worry about her. Everything's fine. And <laughs> I didn't write this line, but the Betsy Morris, the screenwriter, did, and I thought it was great. Uh Drove says, You know what, Connor? Every unsolved mystery, I watch all those unsolved mystery shows, and they all start out like this. <laughs> and I laughed. I thought that's exactly right. It's like, oh. The missing person is just fine. That was a great scene. <laughs> that was a great scene. I yeah, loved. yeah. And I thought Marty Finocchio as Drew was absolutely perfect. I was yeah, so pleased. You did a great job. I thought Sarah Drew was remarkable as well. She worked so hard to to try and learn her to act like she was blind, basically. She worked with um, an actor, a blind actress from Canada who was giving her lots of coaching. The woman, the part she played in the movie um, was the um, gal at, the, at their blind school who, who gave um, Sarah Drew, Emily, Emily, Emily character a tour of the facility. She is a blind actress in real life in Canada. And so she worked a lot with Sarah, who was bound and determined to get it right. And as I didn't have anything to do really with casting, but they included me, the director, the producers included me on all that stuff, which was extremely interesting. They did their best to get a blind actress for that part. And we got close to somebody who would have been big, but she didn't take the part. And in hindsight, I'm kind of glad because I thought Sarah was outstanding. But every other character in the movie who is visually impaired is played by somebody who is in real life visually impaired. That's fantastic. That doesn't happen very often. Nice. Yeah. We're you usually know, played by sighted people and not it's just so great what you've done. So I'm sorry. I keep buttoning it. No, but, I didn't yeah. know it's, it's, 
I've done it, but I was so proud that the producers insisted on that. And Hallmark spent a lot of money because they had to fly these people in from all over Canada. So it was not cheap um, for them to do that, especially with the extras, because usually extras, they don't make much money and they just are sourced from the local environment. But they didn't do that. They they flew people in from the other end of Canada and had to put them up and had to feed them and all of that. And I got to meet with those people. That was another fun thing I got to do. But at any rate, I thought that was awfully impressive. Um, you know, I so we got there. They film a Hallmark movie over three weeks. There, that's 15 shooting days. The contract requires a 14 hour minimum. And the union rules require, I forget, maybe it's eight hours between when you start. So you can start at 7.30 on Monday, but then if you go over your 14 hours that first day, then you start a little later the next day and then you have to start later the next day. So by Friday, you're starting at 9.30 or 10 and working. Um, that's kind of how that goes. Their aim is to get five to six minutes of finished film from every day. So that shows you just how Ooh, much goes. Yeah. In. Those yeah, are long days. <laughs> long days. And I thought it would be so glamorous to be an actress. No, it's hard work and annoying work between every take somebody's at you fussing with your makeup fussing with your hair fussing with your clothes um ugh, that would absolutely drive me crazy yeah <laughs> one of the locate they have a, a medical facility uh, where um she's had her where emily's had her surgery and then she goes back for follow-ups and they rent it out for that um, an actual medical school in Victoria. Um, so it was this big, new, beautiful, beautiful high tech building. It was, it was still in session, although it was summer, so they weren't quite as full as they would normally be. But it, after one scene, um, when, when, you know, they caught people in Canada are so respectful and so nice, you know, people aren't, you know, doing selfie bombing and all that kind of stuff. Sarah was filming and then I, there was a whole group of young women, basically medical students at the top of a stairway that they were overlooking the scene and they were being very quiet. And as soon as they finally said, cut, that's it. And Sarah stepped away, they just were screaming for her. So she went, she was so gracious, always went up and talked to him and they said I, I sort of followed along and they said oh we you're the reason we went to medical school because Sarah Drew was a doctor on Grey's Anatomy for many years and you inspired us to be doctors so that was a real special moment for her um and certainly was nice that's awesome you were um, there to witness that that's really cool yeah it was really fun just the excitement and energy of all that has got to have been great excitement and energy so i arrived on the second week week of filming and by the time i and of course the my first movie they were just very well well they were welcoming here but this time they said you can only come for one day and i thought okay 
I mean, I made hotel and, you know, rental car. I was planning to stay two weeks and I thought, well, we'll just see what happens. So my husband and I went and did what we did the first movie. Don't utter, you do not utter one word of criticism because I know of authors that have gone and said, well, that's not really how I conceive the character and all kinds of stuff. You know what? Shut up. That (laughs) ship has sailed. You are not here to do any of that. You are there to just stay out of the way, be nice and complimentary. That's what we did. And they invited us back for the the rest of the two weeks. In fact, we were late getting there one time and they were like, where were you? We were so worried about you. Um, So that was real nice. I took with me copies of the books that I signed and gave to, um, you know, all all the main players that I knew. I took 30 books. And when I gave the book, to everybody, I kind of gave them a little bit of the same talk, which was true that I have heard, I hear almost weekly from newly blind adults telling me that the book has given them hope and from people who are in the process of losing their sight, it's made them less afraid. So I would hand them the book and I would say, so we've got a big mission here to continue that feeling in this movie. And everyone assured me that that was their goal. The director of photography told me he was so happy to be working on this movie because it was different. He had just come off of 30 consecutive Hallmark Christmas movies. And he said, don't get me wrong, it's all fine, but, and fun. And, but he said, we wanted, it's so inspiring to do something with a little bit bigger message. Um, The director, Andy Makita, directs Virgin River on Netflix, which is very successful. Yeah. (laughs) He is, Andy Makita is it. He is is your stereotypical vision of what a director would be. He's everywhere at once. He's so hardworking and so nice. Um, And he said the same thing. In fact, I think this was his first Hallmark thing, which... Hallmark said, okay, we need, we don't need one of our stable of directors. We need somebody new who can do a more dramatic film. So they got Andy. He was a good choice. Um, You know, when I was, so when I was giving the book out with my little speech, I was giving it to Toby Levins, who plays Connor, her kind of crummy husband who deserts her, you know? And I gave it to him between takes of the scene where he tells her he's taken a job in Tokyo and he's moving away from her and, you know, he's abandoning her. So I, I just gave my little speech to Toby and he looks at me and he's like starting to cry. And he said, let me tell you about myself. He's from Australia. His parents owned a guide dog school. So he's been around this whole community his whole life his mother lost her eyesight when she was 42 and his father abandoned them so toby looked at me and he said so i'm playing my father and he's like crying away and he's the nicest nicest man so we're just kind of you know then by then i'm crying of course and we're hugging doing stuff and then they call him back for the next take 
And his makeup person looks at him and me and says, what are you doing? (laughs) So she's, she's, you know, fixing him up. And then he gets sent back and she turned to me and said, stop with the books and making people cry while we're trying to work. So (laughs) I stopped with the books. Um, He was, he's such a lovely guy. I mean, that had to have been very emotional for him. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I then was able to send the audio version to his mom in Australia and, you know, got to go back and forth with him and tell him how much I love working with her son and all that kind of stuff. That was really fun. Oh, just the connections um, you got to make are awesome. Well, they were. It's so interesting to see how this stuff goes. I'll never, the the one scene in all the movies, in all the movies, I've only had two, get, get with it, Barbie, I've only had two movies, but in both movies. Yet, so far. <laughs> yeah, so far, yeah, so far. That I will remember best is the scene where um, Emily is back at the medical center and they're taking the bandages off of her eyes and they realize the surgery was not successful. So that scene was filmed on Friday at the end of the filming week. And they moved it there on purpose because it was going to be the big emotional punch. So it was late on a Friday. It was interesting to me to see how they set the scene up. Um, There's a director and then there's the first assistant director. And she's always talking into the little microphone on her lapel and telling people where to go. And not so much the actors, but getting the the crew in line telling the photography people where to go, the cameraman, the, the this and that. She's just orchestrating all of it. The main director is just concentrating on getting what he wants out of the actors. So she's basically wanted, we had filmed something really fun right before that. And she knew that we needed to create a whole new emotional climate on set. So she quieted everything down she said no talking on set and had the lights dimmed a little bit in the hallway and got it quieted down they filmed the scene where sarah is in the office kind of away sort of around the corner and they didn't let anybody go there she and her mother and the doctor are the three people in this scene which they filmed from three or four different vantage points, 10 takes each. I mean, they filmed it for a couple of hours. It was excruciating. But between takes, normally the actors will go and get, you know, a water bottle or something to eat, or they're just kind of wandering around and their makeup and hair people are chasing them down to keep them all fluffed up. For this scene, they had one kind of a dark room with some sofas and stuff, but they were there and nobody was to go over there. So they kept charge of that. And with each take, Sarah Drew was more and more emotional. And she didn't lose that emotion between takes. You could, because you can see them on these big screens. And I'll talk about Video Village in a minute. But we could see her. She kept that emotional role going. And before the final take, she and the woman who played her, and her mother was also, you know, barely keeping it together. She and her mother were sitting were in that little space between takes, and they were just clinging to each other, crying. 
So finally, Andy kind of came over and separated him, put his arm around both of them, said, okay, we're ready. So they went and did one last take. And then Sarah came out and said, I, I can't do this again. During that time, I will tell you that every single solitary person on set cried. There are at least 75 people there. Um, Cause you don't just have, you have more people and you have the lighting people and the makeup and the costume and, and the electrician, they've always, uh, they need a couple of electricians cause something's always gone wrong and they just fix everything right away and runners and this and that, in addition to the producers and, and the script editor, all of that, everybody cried at one point, one of the um, executive producers, a young guy, like 24, we were all sitting there with um, headsets on, listening to the dialogue. And at one point he took it off and said, I can watch it, but I can't, I can't listen to it anymore. And he's like sobbing. So Aww. we felt good about that. And then Hallmark, so at the end of every day, the 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 footage would be raw footage would be sent to Hallmark and somebody at Hallmark would in Burbank would look at it. And they came back and said, Oh, our audience will never like this is too sad, too hard for a Hallmark movie. Um, and they wanted it redone. And the exec Beth, the executive producer, and Sarah and Andy said, No, no. So I was proud of them. They, I think, on the finished product, they edited out a lot of, I think, the more powerful scenes, like the Emmy-worthy scenes, but they didn't dumb it down. And I was so, just so impressed that that's what they did. Um, one thing that I was disappointed in was there's a, uh, a scene in a restaurant where in the book where a dog with a phony service vest attacks Garth. That was, that was what guide dogs for the blind asked me to put in because there are so many of those occurrences real life. And then a legitimate service dog gets put out of uh, commission is taken out of service, which is devastating, devastating and so crazy. Um, and I have to say, now that I know all this, I have become a fake service dog Nazi. <laughs> I, am, I am talking to people two weeks ago at the farmer's market. You're allowed to bring your dogs. But there was this great big poodle mix that had a service dog vest on. But it was the most unruly dog, I think, at the entire farmer's market, which is saying something. So I'm like marching over there. And my husband's like, oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, so I said my piece and it didn't do any good because they, they, I've seen them back with that stupid. Anyway. Um, but Hallmark said, we cannot have a dog fight scene. Well, I didn't write like a real dog fight scene. I mean, Garth doesn't get put out of service and his puppy raiser, Katie just tears a strip off of the person with the phony vest and, you know, with the dog with the phony vest, but Hallmark wouldn't do it. So in the movie, it's a scene where the, phony service dog just wants to play with Garth and that's not I mean and that's not good either but I was disappointed um, it doesn't bring 
the real issue to light and the consequences yeah. of that and how hard it is for people who have actual service dogs to be able to go into places and not be questioned and stuff. So, yeah. Right. So. It, it was disappointing. The other thing that they changed that I didn't care for was Garth has a fondness for crunchy Cheetos. Which I know, which is just a literary device because they're orange and round. And he gets one in the beginning of every book and one at the end. <laughs> and I know dogs aren't supposed to have people food, but two Cheetos, an entire book, come on. But because of the trademark, they didn't want, and I get that, it costs money. So they, you know, I'm sure if they had asked Cheetos to do a product placement or something, they would have sold, they would have used Cheetos. But they didn't, so they used potato chips. Um, whatever. <laughs> whatever. And, you know, so since we're on location the whole time, um, they part of why they need such a big crew is they bring vans and vans and, you know, great big, huge moving vans full of equipment everywhere they go. And they have to have parking permits for all this stuff and somebody has to unload it and hook it up and they have to do it fast so that's what happens and most of it's very high tech we spent most of our time sitting in video village which is um where most of the expensive a lot of the expensive equipment is it's generally a little bit removed from wherever the filming is because you don't want to have noise in video village be picked up during the filming but it's um, sort of a black tent and inside the tent there is a cart that has a couple of huge monitors keyboards recording equipment in back of that there's on the left hand side sits on those big director chairs a person sits with the script the script the script reviewer script supervisor sorry and they read every word that the actors say and make all kinds of post-it note marks. And then if somebody goes off script, they run out and tell them. And you have to have people sticking with the script because you take multiple takes and you have to splice them. And it doesn't work if people are not saying the same words, right? So that's the script supervisor. Next to that person sits the director of photography. The director of photography's job is to look at not to direct the action, but to look at what it looks like on the film and make sure it looks like what it's supposed to be, the camera angles are right, and that things are consistent. Um, there are always some famous inconsistencies and anomalies in movies. In Downton Abbey, which is a, if, you, if you're not familiar, it's a 1920s period piece in this fabulous mansion in England. And there's a famous scene on this beautiful mantle in their sitting room where there's a, a plastic water bottle and nobody noticed it and they didn't notice it in cutting. So that made it through and, and aired. On Game of Thrones, sim similar kind of thing. There's a can of Diet Coke in one of the scenes. There, there's a lot of like folklore and sort of superstition about that in the movie industry. And in our movie, there was such a thing. For some reason, they chose, Emily has this really great computer backpack. It's really cute. It's um, sort of a 
faux crocodile brown with a white insert. It's really sharp looking and it's got a white bow on it. Well, I don't know why somebody didn't just staple the bow on. That bow kept coming off. It was really cute, but it kept coming off all the time. I can't tell you the number of times that they'd have to cut a scene because of the stupid bow. <laughs> and during one of the scenes at the Chip and Bean Cafe, when things weren't going well, they were very behind schedule because of some dog issues, puppy issues. The finance, the financial guy happened to be in town and he did not improve anybody's mood. Everybody was so um, on edge around him and I can see why. But anyway, I won't talk trash about him. Um, just fill in your own blanks, this guy. So people are kind of upset anyway. And oh, they ran over the lunch break. And the so this the union steward is talking to the director of photography, and it's his decision as to when they're done filming. He's the one who makes that decision. And he said, Nope, we're not, we are not going to finish here. Cause at the, after the lunch break, they were supposed to go over somewhere. They were breaking set and moving over. And he said, no, we're going to do overtime. And then overtime is a big deal. And the financial guy is getting his little two cents in and lots of um, conversation. Director of photography won that. So anyway, after all that kerfluffle, um, we're watching and I noticed oh, damn, that that bow isn't on there. But I kept my mouth shut because everybody was mad. And so that survived in the scene. It They just didn't have the bow on there. But I thought, well, let's, let's not, you know, get into that. We got to sit in video billage. So front row, script supervisor, director of photography, then behind them are the executive producers. And they let us sit with them. And all of us had... Um, headsets so we can hear all of the dialogue uh so that was so all this high-tech stuff but yet sometimes you got to have some low-tech solutions when they were filming the scenes where emily is getting her white cane training they're outside it's beautiful um historic building called saint saint anne's academy it was a girl's school now it's a historic building and government offices and they had these ginormous pine trees that were full of crows. And you know how noisy crows are. So before they would film a scene, they would have guys go out with great big blocks of wood and just clap them together to scare the crows out of the tree. Then they'd film. They cut the scene. Crows would settle. They reset up from a different cam camera angle clear crows and then film again. <laughs> just sort of interesting to me to see all of that. You think that like how much actually goes into every little part of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. They were um, so, so careful with that. It was at St. Anne's Academy that I got to meet and got invited to address the group of um, visually impaired actors who were sitting around waiting in this beautiful auditorium, which is where they kind of housed them when they weren't needed to be on set. So I got to go talk to them. And one of the people who was with them was a woman from the um, Canadian Braille Library. And none of the Emily books were available in Braille up there. So that was a fun thing because I was able to connect them with the Foundation for Blind Children because the foundation is 
transcribed it into Braille through their collaboration with the prison system here. And voila. So now um, Guiding Emily is available in Braille in Canada. And I love that. Yeah, that's really awesome. That was fun. I'm trying to think if there's anything. I feel like I'm just jammering. Oh, no, um, you're, <laughs> you're good. You're good. <laughs> I'm interested. <laughs> so there it was um really interesting well a couple of things um at the end of the movie emily is what is sitting at her mother's house watching an audrey hepburn movie on the tv with her dreamy new love interest um and he really was such a nice man as a matter of fact he was there with his wife and two little kids were on set and he came back after the second day and told me that he was reading Guiding Emily aloud to them at bedtime. That was their bedtime story. How fun is oh, that? That is awesome. So I have anyway, a quick they, question. Yeah. So yeah. Um, since he had his kids there, were they being educated there too, or were they younger? They were younger and okay. it was summer. Okay. Sarah Drew's kids were there too. So oh, cool. it was fun to see. Yeah. And sometimes their spouses would, you know, they, the spouses would drop by with the kids just like you would if you were anybody else's parent, and then they'd go and do something fun and come back. It was, um, that was kind of cool. So as the movie is going along, they're all talking about, well, you, you think you did have decided this months ahead of time right now, the day that day before they're going to film Emily watching a movie, which you can see on the screen on the, what they're filming. You'd think that they would have decided, but they're still going back and forth on that. They wanted a movie that was in the public domain so they didn't have to pay royalties. And I suggested that great old 1967 psychological thriller, Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn, um, because she plays a blind um, actress who saves her. I don't want to, give away give it away if, if anybody hasn't seen it it's such a great movie um won tons of awards and i thought it would be perfect for this and so did andy makita and so did the producers so they went to hallmark with it and hallmark has said oh no that's too scary a movie we can't do that i mean who do they think watches hallmark movies <laughs> they're not trying to branch out that's for sure <laughs> well, I mean, this movie did branch out for them but geez so, but so they picked a different um audrey hepburn movie and uh, you know what can you say audrey is always great yeah so that's how that came about so i've always asked people well i did a i am hope I'm hoping that this becomes a series on Hallmark. I don't have any definitive answers on that yet, but I have reason to hope. And that would be the holy grail for an author. And I think it would bring such wonderful awareness. The movie did very well. They were pleased. I was lucky enough to have a big enough social media presence that I was able to access and, and was able to flood Hallmark with emails about let's make this into a series. So I was grateful for that. And I always ask people, what were your favorite scenes? So coming in as numbers two is a scene where um, 
the head of the guide dog school realizes that Garth, who isn't isn't doing well with the partners that he's put them with. He keeps getting returned and they're like, well, we're going to have to re, you know, just career change you if you can't be a guide. And then suddenly Mark realizes, oh, wait a minute, you've picked your person. Your person is Emily. I mean, of course that would never happen, but it's great. This is a great heartwarming scene. So that was everybody's second favorite scene. And then the favorite scene in the movie is not when Emily gets together with her love interest. Yay um her personal love interest but it's when garth runs to her and she knows that he's going to be her guide dog that was the the favorite scene so i liked that um so that's kind of my story of the movie my hopes for this movie um andy the producers sarah and anthony antonio um Kupo have all said that they will do a series, which is one of the big deals is you have a successful movie, but then can you get the, the actors back? And I knew the second day I was there that they were all interested in doing this as a series. So, um, so we when shall you see. say a series, you mean a series of movies? Because does I'm not even sure if Home, Hallmark, you, do they do shows as well? They do shows. Okay. They do shows. Yeah. The hope, yeah. The hope <laughs> is that it will be shows. Yeah. So. A la, a la Virgin River. Yeah. Know? That's what I was but just about I'm to say. I'm not saying yeah. no to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So if you I'll had be, your, yeah, which would you prefer to continue the movie theme or would you prefer for it to go to um, series as in a TV show? I think a TV show because I think it's more impactful. I think so too. I think, um, I, yeah, I think Virgin River has more viewership. I think Good Witch, which is Hallmark's most successful franchise, has more viewership. So I'd like that. And that's why I'm working so hard to keep right. I've got another Emily book coming out in May. I'm producing the content so that there's stuff they can do. And there's so much. And that was my next question that you just answered. So I was going to ask when is, and it's book five will be out in May then? Yeah, That's fabulous. Yeah, I'm hoping May 6th. It's still, it's it's out of my hands now. It's in editing. So I'm a little, I have to wait on people keeping their time frames. I've never had a problem with it before. The name of the book is called From the Heart. And Kayla, you were very helpful to me in that because I've got, um, well, I don't want this to be a spoiler, but Stephanie in the book is going to become pregnant and is pregnant and has a baby. And so we're going to take a look at some of the on what to me were unbelievable prejudices against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going to shine a little bit of a light on that. I, I'm excited to read it. Um, so, yeah. And, and it's amazing just how unaware I remember um, when my kids were young and I went to our state capitol and lobbied to have, you know, the rights of blind parents 
um, to be the same as cited where they cannot, CPS cannot be called on a parent because they're blind. There has to be an, uh, something else going on. And just sitting in people's offices and talking to them and they're like, we have no idea. Like, we didn't know this was a thing. We didn't know that people's kids were being taken away from them at the hospital or that I, you know, as a blind parent, I have, I feel like I have to have this, per I have to be perfect because I'm held, you know, people are watching me more than a sighted person. It, it always felt that way. So it was really just that, you know, it, it wasn't that they didn't want to help. It's that they didn't know that help was needed, I guess. And yeah. so this is great that this is reaching a wider variety of people and that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go into the grocery store and people being like, oh, you're the first blind I ever met, you know, like in those types of scenarios where they have, they've seen actual good representation, um, not of you know, blind people being alcoholics and things like that, or, you know, having just these unrealistic, not everybody type scenarios going on in their lives. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for what you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's hope. And as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, well, I don't know if Hallmark's going to tackle that but it doesn't matter because the books have their own reach and as the movie yeah. does better and better i mean guiding emily sales exploded after the movie which wasn't the case with my christmas development the christmas club they did not um but they did with guiding emily so the books have their own trajectory and I love that you went to the Foundation for Blind Children here in Phoenix. Um, that's where I went um, when I was younger, um, before I was mainstreamed in public school and kindergarten. So my preschool, I did summer programs. And so that just, that's meaningful to me. So. I love it. Yeah, it's such a great place. Yeah. So. Um, did you have anything else you want to add or should we open up for questions? Let's open it up. I've, I've been yammering on far too long, <laughs> so I'd love to hear questions. All right. So, Desi, um, do we have any hands? Do you guys have questions? Well, Karen has her hand up. Awesome. Hey, Karen. Go ahead, Karen. Hi there, Barbara and Kayla and everybody. Um, so glad to have you back here with us, um, Barbara. I'm a, um, a fellow Arizona um, and I've uh, been living here for a while. Um, and uh, I just thank you so much for like, coming and speaking. And uh, this is so interesting. It sounds like you just had a great time and there was a lot of fun and um, definitely an experience. Um, so I, I do have a couple questions. Um, so I'm just curious, what made you, um, like what actually transpired that made you like first actually go to the foundation to check to see, um, you know, learn all about, you know, what it was like to be blind and um, to be a student there? Because um, I know you said that you, you know, you lived, you know, close to, um, the foundation for years. And um, so I just care curious what transpired 
um, from that. Um, and then what made you, um, you know, write, start, you know, wanting to write this book, this, this series? Thank you, Karen. Those are, I love talking about this. So at that Desert Foothills Library um, gala fundraiser, I was seated at a table for eight with Emily Main and her husband and Steve Poblowski and his wife, among others. My husband and I sat next to Steve and Melissa Poblowski, who at the time he was the development director for the foundation. And we're just chatting away, had the best time with him. It was a great table. And he said, oh, my God, you live down the street and you've never been in. We'll come and take a tour. And so my husband and I said, he said, come next week. So we're like, well, OK, we'll, we'll come and take a tour. And we did. And I'll tell you what, it, it was life changing for both of us. My husband is the most supportive person of me personally and of my and this vision in particular. So we're touring around. We're seeing the school was in session so we got to see what went on with children and we got to see what went on with older people i remember one child in particular who was four he was deaf and blind and he came up to me and he threw his arms around me four years old and he is he is laughing and giggling so hard i'm like vibrating with this kid and steve said to me that he was born in canada that his parents were told he wouldn't live very long and the best they could do, he would never talk or walk. The best they could expect was just to keep him comfortable. And those heartbroken parents didn't accept it. They found the foundation, they you know sold up their home, emigrated to the United States, which as we all know is that's a big deal to do that kind of thing and enrolled him at the foundation. And here he was for, he was walking, he was talking and he was a joyful person. So at that point I turned to Steve and said, well, I, oh, we went to the Braille library and there was a big old check on the wall from major league baseball for a million bucks presentation check. And I said, gosh, I want one on your wall from me for 2 million bucks, except I'm not rich. And I thought, well, but you know, you can, you can donate royalties, books can do things. So in that moment, you know, and I knew I had already sold the rights, naming rights to Emily Maine. So I thought, okay, I've got my main character. And I just thought, well, I'm gonna just talk about a woman who basically goes through this adult services session and I'm gonna write a book and what do you need? Show the isolation. Steve says isolation of the visually impaired with inside world. I'm like, okay, got it. I can do that. He said, well, I said, well, I'm gonna write this book. We're gonna do this. And instead of looking at me like, yeah, right lady. He's like, okay, well, what do you need to help? And I said, I need to meet, you know, I need to talk to your doctors. I need to talk, blah, blah, blah. So he said, whatever you need, we'll give it to you. And they did. I was still working full-time as a lawyer. Um, and that went away pretty shortly after that. But, you know, honestly, oh, this must have been 2018. It was, yeah, it was 2018, not 2019. So it just all happened. He opened all the doors. He did everything he said he was going to do. I did everything I said I was going to do. And there we are. And interestingly enough, Emily Maine, who had bought the naming rights, 
and paid you know a nice amount for them. When she heard about the book and then the film, she said, oh my God, I didn't pay enough for that. So she wrote another big check to the Desert Foothills Library. So win, win, win all the way around. That's awesome. And, um, but, but, oh, go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. I'm just, you know, that's great. It's just interesting how, you know, it just seems so often in, in life, you know, there's, there's for all of us, there's like twists and turns along the way, things that we don't expect. Um, that is great. And I just, I have like one um, other uh, question. Um, so I read, I read both. I read two of the books. I read the um, the guiding guiding Emily, the first one, and the unexpected path, which is on um, the you know the, the uh, NLS uh, talking book library um, the, yeah. on Bard. And but the the third and fourth one I cannot find. So I'm like half through the story. Well, and so I, I want know, to read. Uh, I have contacted NLS. I can't tell you how many times. They are so slow with this. And contacting them, you know, as an author, there's a form you fill out and you sign the waiver, which I've done. It's on file to let them do it. But then they've got to do it. So maybe if somebody reaches out from your end, they can pull it off of where, wherever it is. And get it put on. Um, okay. And it's available in an audio book, but that's different because you have to, you know, that's expensive. Um, I'll definitely look. I'll definitely look into it and see what I can do. Um, yeah, no, I and um, but meanwhile, is there a place where we can get books three and four? And then I know you said that book five will be coming out in the spring that's awesome and thank you for um, being here thank you i mean it's it's available on amazon and audible and they should be on nls i've i've you know made them available but and i think they're on bookshare too i believe they are on bookshare okay in a text format but audible might be the best for um pre-recorded <laughs> like human narration um yeah. but yeah i think maybe if a couple of us reach out to bard and get it from both ends maybe they'll they'll pick up their feet and see that there's actually a, a want for them yeah and if you get anything back from them that indicates they don't have it from me it's frustrating because you just go on the website and I get confirmation, but you just never know. So if there's anything that you find out that I need to do, let me know and I'll do it. But um, it's from my end, it's like just opening the back door and screaming because you don't know who you're screaming <laughs> to, or, you know, whether anybody's there. If I find anything, you know, hear back from them, um, I will definitely be in touch with you, but I'm hoping I can have a conversation mm -hmm. with them. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Okay. We Appreciate do have more hands. You're welcome. Yeah. We have Jeanette. Go hey, ahead, Jeanette. Jeanette. Glad you're here. You know I don't miss other discussions if I can help it. <laughs> so, um, a couple of things. Do you know if your books are available on Kindle? Oh, absolutely. And they're in okay. KU. They are in and, KU. And what are the names of three and four? 
They are um, over every hurdle. Is that three. one is now on Bard? Karen. Oh, good. Okay. I just I literally just downloaded it while you were talking. Excellent. Okay. Well, that may, at least that's there. And then the the uh, fourth one is down the aisle. Okay. And my other question for you is: unlike other people, and not because it wasn't a good scene, it was a great scene um, where Garth ran to Emily and you know, Garth has chosen you because I know yeah. it's not the way it happens. And I know yeah. that people who are not aware are now going to think, oh, oh, the dogs choose you. And then you have mm -hmm. to go through and explain. As an author, when you're doing something like this and somebody changes your your concept of what you envision a scene should be. And it's like a bigger change than, you know, the rock climbing thing. I think considering yeah. horseback riding and accidents as they go, that was really a phenomenally good substitute. Um, yeah. How hard is it to keep your mouth quiet and not, say but you can't do this <laughs> you know in the emily movies it was hard in the christmas club it was the first movie and i'm like you know i was just so happy to have one made made into a movie and i still am on this um but because there's a stronger mission here and i felt the same way about it was cute garth is choosing her but i don't want people I don't know. They're the general public thinks a guide dog is just like some magic. Yeah, the, dog, the guide. You're not telling the dog where to go. the The dog is 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 doing all the yes. work, and that was my concern about that scene. It wasn't yes. like that. It was a bad scene in and of itself. Um, no, I will tell you, I read the first two books, and I'm now going to look on Bookshare to make sure the other two are on there. Thank but, you. Um, I'm fascinated yeah, and I was... wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you. And and the other scene that made me mad was the um, you know, the dog fight in the restaurant. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But I agree yeah, with you. Nothing I, I can think do they about. could have done a better job with that. Yeah. Thank you, Jeanette. Oh. All right. Now we have Lori. Hi, Lori. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, we can. Hi there. Uh, this is really great, and I've been enjoying listening to you, uh, Barbara. Uh, I'm going to be uh, opening the book uh, on bars of, to read it now that I've seen the movie, but... Um, I'm glad to hear that all the books are, except for book four, is available on Bard. And um, my question is, is about, uh, you mentioned that, they, that you based the dog on Yoki, uh, who was Julie's dog. Um, I happened to uh, train with Julie many years ago at the foundation. Um, and is there any way that you would be willing to share what happened to the puppy? Uh, do they relocate the doggy after 
sister who passed away. Uh, I do know that. Uh, I'm happy to share that. No, Neoki stayed with his family. Thank, uh, thank God. So he stayed with Julie's family. I mean, he was kind of ready to be done working anyway. He was old enough. Um, that's was, what I thought. I thought he was getting yeah, older to Yeah, some health. So he's there. And get this. He occasionally her husband who's just the sweetest man as you probably know he will bring yeah. Neoki into the foundation so Neoki can hang out with Biscuit oh is that sweet yes I know I know oh, Biscuit I, too that's why when you mentioned her I was like I know her too <laughs> yeah so Neoki gets to go in and hang with Biscuit which just makes Isn't me awesome happy yeah I so dedicated the I mean, it was amazing when you mentioned both people. I'm like, I know them personally. I'm thinking, yeah. wow, what a what a small world. <laughs> Is it? See, it's we all have these connections. I dedicated the fourth book to Julie to her memory because she oh, was. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, such a larger than was, life person. I was so sorry to hear that she passed away. Yeah, I agree. But you're doing awesome, and I think. What you've done is super, and and I do feel that the animals do too. They're humans because I've gone through that personally because I have animals. So um, I that scene was uh, impressive to me because of the animals I have, and some have chosen me, some chose my grandmother. It's just amazing how they choose who they want to be with. I love that. But thank you so much. I look forward to book five. It'll be great to read. Thank you. Thank and thanks you, for coming Lori. to share with us tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you. Oh, I love oh. that the dogs get to play. That's awesome. <laughs> so nice. So. Jeanette has her hand up again. All right. Hey, Jeanette. Oh, Welcome back. To let you know. <clears throat> that all four books are on Bookshare. So, Karen, if oh, you have are. access to... Yeah, they are. God. <laughs> yeah, they are. Okay. Bookshare sometimes get things gets things a little faster. So, Yes, it tends to, because a book that was released today was out today, and I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, cool. uh, is it one we should all read? Um, well, I'm going to read it. It's the 58th book in the series. So if you haven't yeah, read the rest, wow. you might have a little time to, ch to catch up. So, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that is, that's really cool. Um, like Bookshare is just great that we, until the last couple of years, I will say I've never been able to read a book the day it came out. And I was never able to like discuss it with one of my cited peers mm -hmm. um, because I, I it was always so hard to get a hold of a book that was accessible. And since Kindle and all these other, you know, um, e-reader type things, it's really made a difference and put us kind of on that same 
level as other people where we can go to a book discussion and be like, okay, the book came out last week and I got to read it or, you know. Um, so it's always exciting for me to be able to see a, di a book the day it, it's released. Um, even though I don't have time to read it, I have a couple in my queue before I can get to it. But it's just awesome that that is something that is available to us now. Like, just the technology has completely changed since I was younger. So, um, Desi, do we have any other hands? Let me want... see. Right. No, we do not. And we're almost at 10 minutes uh, till the end of the okay. call. Perfect. Thank you. So, mm -hmm. Barb, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but um, you were on Sunday edition a couple of weeks ago. And Anthony asked you for, he had an ask, and I think you said yes. Um, and I just want to highlight it that you are willing to put um, a name up for bid in our summer auction. Oh, did I hear that correctly? Oh, sure. Awesome. So there you go, people. <laughs> you could be in a book. <laughs> and, and you know, it's fun because I do kind of write, sometimes there are mysteries, but you can name, you can put your own name, you can put a dog's name, you can you can name the villain, um, the mystery writers. I, I'm not gonna write a book, I don't think, this year where anybody dies. But the mystery writers make a lot of money for charities by you can you can uh, give them a name of somebody you want killed off. So um, <laughs> I don't think I'll be doing that, but uh, you can a good guy, a bad guy, whatever you want. That's awesome. Um, so we I know you've talked about this before um, and you talked a little bit about it on Sunday edition. Um, but I love it. So I'm going to ask it, where did you develop your love of writing? I guess that's a good way of, of putting it. Well, I guess I developed my love of writing from my dad, who would read to me every night of my childhood, you know, all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and Nancy Drews and all those kinds of things. And then when he retired he wrote whodunits and he never tried to get any of them published um they were pretty good he was smart he was clever and was a decent writer so i have 17 manuscripts of his and boxes and i always thought well when i retire maybe i'll edit his books and then i'll get them published under his name and then fate stepped in as we were talking about as it sometimes does and i broke my neck in a car accident in 2010 um and at the time i had double vision for months and months. in fact really until two years ago when um i had strabismus strabismus surgery that was successful but at any rate um so there I am in a neck brace, double vision. I can't, so I can't watch TV, really. I'm not supposed to be looking at the computer. I'm not reading. I'm not working. But I had no lower body injuries. So it was nice weather, nice weather in, here in Phoenix. And I would spend like three hours walking around every afternoon, just walking in this little drive around my house. So I was close to home because I didn't want to go far in a neck brace for crying out loud. Um, and I just thought, well, if I wrote my own book, what would I write? And I remember hearing my dad's voice in my head saying, Barb, write your own book. Don't worry about mine. Write your own. And I came up with 
the cast and characters from my Rosemont series and wrote it thinking, um, oh, I don't think this is ever going to go anywhere, but it did. And so a little author career was born and I did my, so that was 2012 when I published my first book. And seven years later, I finally stepped away and said, no, I need to write full time. And that's what I do now. So do you think at some point you might go back and do one uh, publish one of your dad's um, manuscripts? I kind of don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. And, but maybe, but I don't think so. Mainly because I'm, I'm, I'm the worst boss I've ever had. I will tell you that. <laughs> I work so hard um, that I've got all my own stuff to write. And I think maybe that's what, what my path should be. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I love that your dad read to you. I have very great memories of my dad reading to me when I was little. Uh -huh. um, and, and some of my favorite books now are those just not necessarily because of the story itself, but because of the memories uh, of, of being there and, and doing that with him in that moment and having him read to me um, was always so special to me. That closeness is really something. My dad would make up stuff to see if I was paying attention. <laughs> and, and, and he was clever and he was funny. So it was always fun to think about that. Yeah, that's awesome. So my dad would do some of different voices. My husband does that with our kids when he would read to them a lot when they were little. And once they got enough, a, a little bit older and could read themselves, then they would all sit down and um, they would each pick a character in the book. And then they would read those lines and do their own silly voices. And I just, I love that time of, of just you know, having yeah. a book and reading it. I think that's the, the thing, yeah. one of the things I miss a lot about um, not being able to see now like I could when I was younger. And when I was younger, I didn't want to read. And now I'm like, I wish I could just like open a book and hold it and read it. And, you know, mm -hmm. the struggle's real. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. So. Um, Desi, do we have any hands real quick or are we still clear? We do not. We are clear. All right. Well, then I think um, since it's getting late here, my kids are actually, speaking of them, are going to go to bed here pretty soon. I think we'll end a few minutes early. Um, thank you, Barbara, for, for coming back. Um, and I know you were just here a couple weeks ago with Anthony and you let us talk to you and, you know, last year. And I hope to have you back again after book five um, releases and awesome. So I'm so excited. Um, thank you, Desi, for hosting. Thank you, Natalie, for being over there in Clubhouse and Manning over there. I appreciate you ladies taking time out of your day to be here with us. And thank it you for your pleasure. attendance for being here. Um, without, I don't have much else to say, so we'll be back with our next, um, uh, community call. Arizona's community calls are going to be on the third, uh, or four, sorry, fourth Tuesday of each month. I have so much going on. I don't even know where I'm going to be. <laughs> um, and Lynn Lindbergh from Couch to Active will be joining us and, um, she'll be talking a little bit about health and wellness with us. So make sure you tune in to that.